Hello and welcome. You're listening to Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk all things journalism. Coming to you from 2SEI in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network, and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. I'm Chris Anthigiotis. In this special edition for International Women's Day, we take a serious look at how the media covers domestic violence. We'll be asking how we, as a profession, can do a better job of covering this hugely difficult and hugely important issue. We'll also discuss the role of women in our newsrooms. How far have we come? And is there in fact a chance that we are going backwards? There is some worrying new research in that regard. Finally, a trend which is not worrying at all. Emerging on the back pages of our papers at once most male of domains, women are definitely kicking goals, hitting it out of the park, putting in 110%. Let's see what other cliche I can come up with. You know what I'm talking about. They're doing it for themselves in sport and finally getting the media acknowledgement of that fact. To discuss all this and more, we're joined by four formidable women. Gina Rushton is a journalist for BuzzFeed. She specialises in gender reporting. She has also worked for The Australian. Welcome to Fourth Estate, Gina. Thanks for having me. Emily Watkins is the news editor for Crikey. She also worked at ABC's Media Watch and reported for NT News, where she covered Crocs, of course, <laughs> but also UFOs. Emily, welcome. <laughs> Thank you. And courts. So, yeah. third, third on the, on the list. <laughs> <laughs> Jane Gilmore is the founding editor of the King's Tribune, a freelance journalist and writer of Fixed It, Violence and the Representation of Women in the Media, published by Penguin Random House. Jane, thanks for joining us from Melbourne. Thanks for having me. Finally, Louise Evans has had a long and distinguished career in journalism, most recently as the founding editor for AAP Fact Check. One part of AAP which actually has survived, and we will be discussing AAP a bit today. She's also director for Women's Sports Australia. She was the first female sports journalist in the Sydney Morning Herald and the first female sports editor employed by The Australian. Louise, welcome. Great to be here. All right. Thank you very much. Um, Ladies, it's extremely sad that the first topic we are going to discuss is the brutal murder of Hannah Clark and her three children, Alia, Leana and Trey, aged six, four and three. I don't need to tell you the disturbing fact that on average one woman a week is murdered by their current or former partner. This is a huge issue for our society and unfortunately the coverage of this high-profile, horrific case highlighted a number of systemic flaws in our industry. The media was rightly called out on headlines and reporting that minimised Rowan Baxter's responsibility and instead played into the toxic narrative of victim blaming. We'll certainly be discussing those. However, I'd like to start with another accusation levelled at reporters, that they were too timid. Gina Rushton, you wrote a compelling piece on this issue for BuzzFeed. Now, people listening may not know that journalists are usually constrained by a number of laws when reporting on crimes, so as not to prejudice any court proceedings, for instance. In this case, the suspected perpetrator was dead and there was little doubt about their actions. Why did some in the media find it hard to properly call this crime out? Look, I, I mean, I wrote that article, I think, because there was like this initial backlash that was kind of like, look at these headlines, they're victim blaming. Um, and most of those examples were completely, you know, egregious um, examples that should be condemned. And then there was this kind of counter backlash. And I'm saying on Twitter, which, you know, isn't real life, but of um, <clears throat> journalists saying, well, actually, hey, we need to be legally sensitive in these situations. Like, um, we can't prejudice any court, court proceedings, which I think, after, you know, after talking to a defamation lawyer is a bit of a cop out. Like, we all know that the rules around that are using allegedly um, 
you know, stating what a charge or, or, or whatever is. But I think it doesn't really explain the editorial decisions that were made by those outlets. Like it doesn't explain the frame, framing of a story that minimises perpetrator behaviour and maybe, um, you know, exacerbates the victim's behaviour in any way. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the interesting thing here is that in your article you point out that allegedly is actually not such a defence anyway. Yeah, the, the lawyer said to me, some some journalists believe, erroneously believe that allegedly will save them, and I was thinking, <laughs> imagine, <laughs> imagine being that journalist. Um, but we do, and, and obviously it minimises probably the risk of someone taking legal action against you if you've put if you've put allegedly in slightly, um, very slightly, and and provided extra context and whatever, but. You know, if that goes to court and the average person says, you know, you know, you allegedly did this to someone, the the imputation is obviously that you did that to someone. So I think um, it was a nice reminder that those words don't really help us. So it's really important to be clear on the facts. Yeah. Um, Emily, you're a media reporter specialist, but you've also covered courts. Mm. Do you think that this is an issue of training perhaps in the media that, you know, if we were better trained, maybe we'd be more courageous in our facts? Yeah. Yeah, it was interesting just listening to you then, Gina, because I I have covered courts and I've also done the crime beat in Adelaide. So I've, I've sort of probably got sucked into all of those tropes myself because, you know, if you're covering a, a breaking news story, particularly mm-hmm. if it's a crime story, you're trying to get the facts there. You uh, have a very standard way of writing a story, you know, the... Um, uh, inverted pyramids, you know, like what, who, what, where, mm. when, um, a police comment and the idea in your head that it will probably go to court and you don't want to prejudice a trial for very legitimate reasons. I mean, you don't want to go to the point where you might um, prejudice a trial and someone who's done something terrible doesn't get held held accountable for it because mm. of your reporting. So, um, you know, I think it's very there are very legitimate reasons that reporters stick to a very strict formula when covering breaking news stories like that. But yeah, I mean, I mean, I don't know what the solution is, but perhaps we do do need better training around, you know, when you do stick to that formula and when you don't. But in in the current uh, climate where uh, newsrooms are getting smaller. We're having fewer reporters. There's more pressure on them. It's very easy to fall back on uh, on a formula that you know works that will satisfy your editor for now, and then you can move on and do more reporting. So. That's a very good point. Yeah, the climate makes you more timid as well. Like- well, yeah, and I mean it's not even just the filing, getting it done, but there's also the bigger bigger picture around defamation proceedings and, uh, you know, reporters and newsrooms and editors feeling cowed by that. So there's there's a whole lot of context around it other than just a single news report, no matter how big or... uh, or horrible that particular case is. Okay. Um, however, Louise Evans, in, in your many years in the media, have you ever seen training for journalists on how to cover domestic violence specifically? And if I can go even further, when you started in 1983, would that even have been a discussion? No, is a short answer. But going back to the point about court reporters, I'm an old court reporter, you know, I did everything, including chasing fire engines and politicians and 
and rock stars. And, you know, back in my day when I was working in courts at the Canberra Times, you know, I got very solid training as to do how to cover petty sessions and, and the magistrates and Supreme Court. So I put it down to uh, what's happened with the reporting of the Baxter case. I put it down to inexperience and sloppy reporting and um, timidness within the newsroom. I think that a lot of journalists these days aren't getting that solid training, especially in courts. And they don't have the um, they don't have the the knowledge and the and the strength and the wherewithal to say, okay, this is the lead paragraph, this is the second paragraph, you know, the the old pyramid, and the some of the headlines, you know, were even worse. And again, I put that down to, you know, poor editing and sloppy journalism, you know, just not knowing how to write a headline and writing headlines that, you know, let the um, perpetrator off the hook. But to your point, did I back in 1986 when I started the Sydney Morning? Herald as the first female sports reported it, domestic violence was something that was kicked under the carpet, as was sexism, as was misogyny, as was racism. Wow. Okay. So we have come somewhere. Um, however, um, Jane Gilmore, if I can now come to you, you changed headlines as part of your Fix It initiative to tackle the scourge of domestic violence. So obviously we still have work to go and maybe even because of this training deficit, we're going backwards. When you saw Fox Sport Australia run the headline, ex-NRL player Rowan Baxter dies alongside his three kids, a strange wife in Brisbane, car fire tragedy. A uh, number of things wrong with that headline. Were you surprised? No, I really wasn't. Um, I wish I was, but I've been doing this for six years now and I spent the last two years writing a book about it, so I was studying it really intensely. And the thing that I noticed that happened over and over again, but again, didn't surprise me at all, was the difference between the headlines and the actual article. So I agree a little bit with what the others have said about training, but really the actual article, the journalists and reporters writing the articles were not doing too badly, particularly that first day when you do have to be a bit careful about the information that's coming out, making sure it's confirmed. It would be a brave, more likely stupid journalist that would go against what police are saying about a crime like that and in the beginning the police are saying we don't know yet. So I thought the actual reporting was not too bad. It was the headlines that let everything down. That was really where it was going wrong and it was going wrong across the board. It wasn't just the tabloid papers. It was across the board and I don't think that's a lack of training. I honestly believe that uh, perspective because it's always the way these headlines are reported. It's always reported as either the man is erased, um, so he's not there at all, or he's there, but he's there as the victim. Mm. This, is, this is how they write headlines about men's violence against women in whatever context it is, whether it's domestic violence or sexual violence or street violence, which is the rare one. That's always how they're written. And it comes from, I think, those subconscious biases that say women are responsible for keeping themselves safe, despite the fact that that's not possible. So I think the training that's required is to explain to people that you are putting yourself just as much at a defamation risk by implying that a woman is responsible for violence enacted against her, that you are actually also committing subjudice contempt if you are creating sympathy for the accused, Mm -hmm. equally with creating sympathy for the victim, that these legal risks are not mitigated by by defending the person accused. A lot of work that needs to be done there. Jane, that's an excellent point. Thank you. Um, and something I think we can all think about. Emily, the, the headline, ex-footy star who died in burning cars showered kids with love, 
also very problematic. And um, Do you think it is unconscious bias? That's why the media is compelled to explain away male violence? Look, probably. Uh, I mean, I'm, I probably don't know as much about this as uh, maybe Gina or Jane other than my, my own experience, but, I mean, it's, it's a fact that most senior editorial leaders are men. Uh, so, I mean, that's just a fact. So you would expect that there's a certain bias that would creep in in the sorts of stories that were chosen and how they were written. I mean, that's where a newsroom culture comes from, is from its leaders. So I think that is probably at play. I think as well with any sort of horrific crime, there's a tendency for anyone to try and see themselves or people they know in a story. And so if you've got someone who is a, is a man who follows the football and they know this guy is a footy player, they might that might be what they think is the most newsworthy about the story. I mean, in this case, clearly it, you know, resulting in a pretty egregious piece of work. But, I mean, I don't know if maybe that has something to do with it. It's interesting because there's also the case that, you know, calling men monsters isn't mm. that helpful either. Mm. Um, but if I can just stick on these headlines issue, um, Gina, BuzzFeed is famous for putting a lot of thought into how its headlines can connect with people, mm. um, particularly to get them to click in a digital first world. Do you also think about what message those headlines send? Yeah, of course. Um, I mean, actually, BuzzFeed, like a really popular format for me is this woman, blah, blah, blah. Like it's usually centering the woman's experience. Um, yeah, I, I think also on that issue of um, it's interesting that you brought up like the, you don't want to create a monster because that that's a really – there's a really there's a balance between like I did this fellowship last year through um, Walkley's and Our Watch and it was just like a year of learning how to best report on gendered violence and then one of the biggest debate between all the journalists um, on one of the retreats was that idea of you don't want to say like you know he was a star um, rugby player or he he loved his kids or whatever and make that the focus of the high, of the headline but at the same time you know, if the neighbour says, oh, he seemed like such a lovely guy, that's actually not unimportant to put in the story because domestic violence is hidden. So it's about contextualising that, like, you know, maybe you put that quote in and then maybe underneath straight away you say this is the rate of domestic violence to kind of, you know, explain how hidden it, it must be. So, yeah, I, I always think that's a really interesting balance. Louise, you were uh, nodding vigorously there. Well, look, that headline is absolutely appalling. I mean, mm. you, whoever wrote that should be just sacked. <laughs> for a start, Baxter was not an NRL star. He played one trial match for the New Zealand Warriors, so that is just flat-out wrong. And the second bit about him showering his kids with um, love, that's straight out of his social media, which we all know is, you know, our best lives, not our real lives. So, mm. you know, to take... Um, you know, the fact that, well, just it's the whole thing is just completely wrong and, you know, is a sackable offence in my, and if I was the editor, that journalist would not be working for me. I'd like to stay on this topic a little bit longer. And if I can just bring in here a couple more statistics, these from White Ribbon. Uh, one in four women experience emotional abuse by current or former partners. Almost 40% of women who do leave their partners continue to experience violence. One in six women have been stalked, one in five have experienced sexual violence and 85% sexually harassed. This is belatedly being recognised as a major issue for our society, which has fueled some of the valid anger at some of the poor reporting decisions. But then there was also another perhaps more problematic line of attack, which took issue with straight reporting. 
that seem to suggest journalists need to make forceful declarations. In this age of opinion, is objective journalism dead? And if I can ask, perhaps provocatively, does it even make sense for events like these? Jane, what's your take on this? Is DV such a big issue that maybe straight reporting isn't enough? Um, No, I completely disagree with the entire premise. I think what we need is straight reporting, but straight reporting that, as Gina said, contextualises. But not just with the stats, which I think now are reasonably well known, but also with the way abuse works. So if somebody um, like that man who killed Hannah and her children is presenting himself as a loving father, that that's really common in abusive men. That's part of the pattern of abuse is to make sure that their victims aren't believed, is to present themselves as the kind, loving, sensible one and their victims as the crazy, manipulative liars. That's an extremely common feature of that kind of abuse. And if you're going to report, as Gina says, it's really important that we don't make them into monsters, that they are just the kind of guy that sits next to you at work or plays on the footy field with you, but you contextualise the abuse. So, yes, he reported himself as a loving father This is, and then something under it with a quote from an expert which you can get from almost anywhere to say this is typical of abusers. Mm. So that people understand that when they see that kind of thing, well, how can I reconcile this man who appeared to be a loving father with this terrible thing that he did? Oh, because that was how he wanted people to see him. Um, that- so that kind of contextualization is actually objective reporting of of domestic violence and family violence, it doesn't mean that you present that idiot idea of of faux balance where you present both sides equally because there's not both sides to this in the same way that there's not both sides to climate change. Objective reporting means keeping the public informed of the things that they may not necessarily know, which is putting all that stuff in context. So I think there's absolutely a place for it. It's more important than ever. It's just a matter of how we understand doing that that needs to change. Yeah, I think there's an issue here with people sort of uh, not understanding what objective reporting actually is. Um, Louise, given your varied roles at that great bastion of straight reporting, AAP, and given that evidently Nine and News Corp, apologies, um, pulled the plug and uh, not investing in this type of reporting, do you think that, you know, we might have even less understanding of what straight reporting is in the future? Absolutely. I mean, I've worked for AAP for six years, but I also worked for the Sydney Morning Herald for eight years and for the Australian for 10 years. So I'm a bit of a rare bird in that, you know, I've worked across the platforms. And it's my opinion that the death of AAP is a great tragedy in the Australian media because there goes accurate, fast, unbiased media uh, news reporting from our landscape. And sadly, AAP, you know, people talk about digital disruption and, oh, it's killing off the media. Unfortunately, in this case, AAP was killed by its own shareholders. It was killed by Nine and Fairfax and by News Corp. It started with Nine saying, we don't want to take the feed anymore. And then they um, buddied up with News Corp and they both took the opportunity to kill AAP. And, you know, it's the media eating the media. And, you know, what what have we got now? You know, there was um, fantastic, you know, straight reporting that, you know, the day that um, they put the knife into AAP, you know, 2,000 blah, blah, blah stories, you know, fact, factual, fast, accurate stories, you know, were published on multiple platforms. That's gone. Like, where are we now? 
That's a good question. Um, Emily, what do you think? Do you see a trend towards opinion over straight reporting, or the hard work of, of straight reporting? Yeah, I mean, definitely. I think if you look at any any news news website at all, there's, a, you know, even the ABC to some extent has more opinion and analysis, I think, on its homepage than it did in recent years. And I think it's mainly because it gets clicks, you know, if you get people angry or emotional in some way, they're more likely to click and engage. And there's such a value put on engagement rather than informing people on news websites that, you know, and that and that's the result. And I, I mean, I agree with Louise, it's it's devastating for this industry. You are listening to Fourth Estate on the Community Radio Network from the studios of 2SER. My guests for this International Women's Day edition are Gina Rushton, Jane Gilmore, Emily Watkins and Louise Evans. So far on the show, we've been discussing the difficult issue of reporting domestic violence. And let's not mince words, the systemic problems in media coverage are a symptom of the wider reality that we live in a patriarchy. And guess what? The media is no different. So I have numbers which are being crunched right now by our researchers at the Centre for Media Transition, which show an increasing wage gap since 2014, and also an increasing age gap with the average woman in media now 10 years younger than the average man. Um, The researchers leading this project expect to be able to publish the data soon, so I'm not actually allowed to say more. I'm giving away a little (laughs) bit of a scoop here. Uh, But it's clear that there is still some life in the old boys club. Uh, Louise, I'll start with you. Are you surprised by an increasing wage gap? Not at all. Not at all. Uh, when I started at the uh, at the Australian and, and I had the, well, I don't know whether you call it the, the luck or what, what it, you know, what adjective do you want to put to it to become the first female sports editor, um, I was able to lift the staffing to 25%, 25% women, 75% men. And I was able to, because I had my hands on the purse strings, I was able to make sure that the women were paid, you know, at the same level that the men were. Um, I can tell you now, um, to, uh, in 2020, there are no women working in sport at the Australian. They've all left. Um, and that's got to do with culture. It's got to do with pay. And it's got to do with opportunity. So not surprised at all. Wow. Um, I'd just like to open this up to the panel. And Any comments? I mean, I guess it sort of reflects the increasing casualisation of this workforce as well, which, you know, across all sectors in... Uh, affects women more than more than men for a whole range of reasons. So I guess in that respect, it's not not that surprising, but it's pretty bad. <laughs> I think it's also a reflection of the way journalism values women's journalism. Mm. That that last study that was done in 2016, the women in media, were, um, where it was looking at the gender breakdown of the of what's reported. So while I think they were close to parity on the number of journalists something like over 70% of political reporting and financial reporting was done by men and over 90% of sports reporting was done by men and women were predominantly in the lifestyle sections. So when we're losing, you know, there's been thousands of jobs in journalism lost over the last 10 years, but where they're cutting is those places that are seen as not important and so you tend to lose more women in those places whereas the things that are perceived as important, proper, serious journalism like politics and finance the men there are seen as proper, serious, important journalists that we can't afford to lose. So they're more likely to hang on to them and let go women who they see as doing not proper journalism. Now, this is obviously all not what I think about it, but it's how it does seem to be perceived in a lot of newsrooms. So I think those kind of attitudes in a 
industry that's losing a lot of jobs would inevitably lead to a much larger gender pay gap. And I'd just also say that the on the note of serious journalism and, and men doing politics, whatever, I would also say that even serious, quote-unquote, serious journalism, that in, once it involves women, people... Um, you know, like the stuff I write about, um, you know, abortion law reform, that's about politics, that's about mm. um, it's, it's about the law, it's about class, all of those things that are quite quite serious and, and that gets like pulled into kind of like, you know, like it's the yeah. same as writing about fashion or it's just like kind of this emotional topic um, when it couldn't be more political. That's also a really relevant point just to finish up on the domestic violence thing that it's reported often as a women's issue. Mm. And it is a political issue, a criminal issue, a health issue, a human rights issue. A financial a issue, issue. A financial issue. There are so many other things, health primarily, so many other things that it is before it's a women's issue. And even if you're going to assign it to a gender, to me it's more a men's issue. <laughs> so I don't understand how these things, as Gina said, that are really, really important to the whole of society are lumped into the women's pages with recipes and and celebrity photos. I do want to just point out that it's also an age gap, um, which also correlates to wages. Um, Gina and Emily, you're both in active newsrooms. What are you seeing in terms of age in women? Well, our newsroom is quite small. (laughs) We are three young women and one young man. (laughs) I mean, when we had a big intake last year, uh, it was a lot more women than men. They were all young. Yeah, young. <laughs> okay, maybe we need some more research to really unpack what's happening. I think, happening I think maybe at the bottom of that is that um, young journalists are cheap. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and experience costs money. Oh, all right, um, it is a complicated industry at the moment, um, but let's move on to talk about what was once the ultimate boys' club, but not anymore, uh, sports journalism. Uh, with the ICC Women's T20 World Cup in Australia, it seems fitting to take a look at how far we've come. Obviously, Louise, you were a pioneer in this field. I'm guessing it wasn't easy or straightforward. (laughs) Um, I'm still in (laughs) counselling. Okay. Kidding, Um, kidding. (laughs) All right, just once a week. (laughs) Um, Would you like to give us some insight about it and how things have changed or is that a bit too traumatic? (laughs) No, look... um, you know, when I was a young journalist and I walked into the Sydney Morning Herald in 1986 and I was the first female sports reporter, um, yes, harassment, yes, sexism, yes, misogyny. I'll just tell you a very quick story about which kind of sums up what I kind of went through. Um, there was a, a, a horse racing writer who should remain, remain nameless and his um, party trick was to come back from the races and get undressed um, in front of me in the in the newsroom. So we used to sit in pods and I was in his pod and he used to take off his clothes, leave his undies on, and he used to think that was funny to intimidate the young female journalist oh reporter. So I reported this to the House Committee. The um, young fellow from the House Committee's response was to take me out to lunch and ask me out. Oh, my God. So then I reported it to the head of the House Committee and the head of the House Committee said, this is ridiculous, we can't have this happening to our young female reporters, you know. We have to take some action. So I was moved from the pod because I was the problem. Mm. That's how they solved it back in 1986 at the Sydney Morning Herald. Wow. I wish people could see the faces in the studio right now. Um, It kind of does sound like maybe we've come 
somewhere in the industry. Well, yes, I have to say that, you know, um, when I was working at, uh, at Fact Check at AAP, nobody got undressed in front of me and everyone <laughs> behaved. Progress. <laughs> and everybody, but the, the AAP has one of the best cultures of any newsroom in the world wherever I've worked. And everyone there, you know, behaves, you know, fantastically. So, yes, we have come a long way. But I bet there are young women reporters, you know, in newsrooms that are still suffering that crap. Yes, there are. I've spoken to them. Um, the other thing that's changed, of course, is what women sports reporters report on. And we're seeing more women's sports being reported. Can I ask um, maybe the rest of the panel, does what happens on the sports pages matter to the culture of news reporting? Can it help shift unconscious bias, for example? Um, Jane, can I ask you first? Well, I do think it's interesting that it's still reported as women's sport. It's not just sport, it's women's sport. In the same way that there's news and women's news, there's sport that's for everybody and then women's sport that's just for women. So the underlying assumptions in the reporting that I've seen seems to be that only women would watch it and they're only watching it because they're feminist or something like that, that they're not actually watching it just because it's good sport and they're not reporting on it in the way that they report on men's sport. Now, that's not always the case, but I can definitely see touches of that and I've, it's almost, again, that subconscious bias of the training of the way young journalists are trained to think of sport and the training that sports journalists get in newsrooms, which is to think of sport as being a man's occupation, both as a player and as a supporter. And I think that part of it, there's just those last tinges of that left that really needs to be eradicated so that we can start talking about the athletes that perform in professional sport as exactly that, athletes, not women athletes. Was any of this like seeing women athletes as as athletes in their own right um, part of the motivation for the Women in Sport Photo Action Awards? Um, absolutely. The the whole thing started. I was at a Women's Sports Awards um, night, and on the red carpet, I ran into the Campbell sisters, um, Bronte and Kate, the Olympic champion swimmers, and they looked so glamorous. I didn't recognise them. Almost like walked past them. I was like, "Oh my God, hi, how are you?" And I said, "You look fantastic." And they kind of like grimaced at me. And I said, "What's the matter?" And they said, "Regardless of what we do for the rest of the year, these photos of us on the red carpet are going to follow us around." And I said, "What? So you're going to win, you know, a, a championship in Japan, and they're going to show a photo of you and your." in this gorgeous dress? And she said, yes. And I thought, that is just so wrong. You know, can you imagine, you know, Buddy Franklin, star of the, you know, Sydney Swans, has a blinder of a game. And the photo that accompanies that is Buddy in his black tie, like, give me a break. <laughs> and I was just angry. And I looked at, started looking at the way, yeah, sure, women are getting a lot of column space, you know, in digital and print media. But the photos were, you know, a nice girl with a ball tucked under her arm or a bat over her shoulder, you know, with nice hair and makeup. I thought, this is so wrong. Where are those achingly beautiful, you know, screaming strengths, you know, photographs? So I, I launched Whisper, the Women in Sport Photo Action Awards, to convince the media and to convince the public that women are athletes, they are strong, and that's the way they should be presented. And that's what's actually happening in the community as well, right? We know that women play a lot of sport and do it extremely well. Um, so, you know, this is a case of where we can do better as an industry. And But I'd like to ask all four of you, as a parting gift of solidarity, let's call it, to any young woman journo listening in to this International Women's Day edition of Fourth Estate, 
in one or two lines if you were writing a letter to your younger self? What advice would you give them in terms of being a woman in the news business? Jane, can I start with you? I think it would be to stop wasting so much time on on being afraid and be, feeling insecure because it was such an energy drain for so many years that there was so much more I could have got done if I hadn't been so scared of pushing myself forward and having confidence in my abilities. Uh, thank you, Jane. Gina? I was going to say something else, but then this conversation just reminded me. What I would tell my younger self is when you found out that the cadet, the male cadet who started on the exact same day as you was within a year being paid a lot more than you, you should have said something <laughs> and not assumed that it was because he was doing a better job because he wasn't. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, Louise, I'll come to you next, actually. Uh, I would say to my younger self, um, if you see or hear um, in the workplace of sexism, racism, misogyny, call it out. Because um, if you think that by not acknowledging it and by ignoring it, it will go away, it will not. It will get worse and it will exacerbate and you just make it worse for everyone else. It's very hard to call it out, but do it because you just change. If you, if you make a change, you change the culture and that's the only way to do it. Wow. Okay, Emily, final words to you. Um, not dissimilar to Jane's actually, but I would tell myself to that you are good enough and to move with purpose and uh, to make the most of the the senior people in the newsrooms that you work with. Don't think that you're not good enough to talk to them or to uh, draw on their experience. And actually, they're just people and they would probably love to help you. Well, ladies, thank you for an enlightening discussion. Gina Rushton, journalist for BuzzFeed, Emily Watkins, news editor for Crikey, Jane Gilmore, freelance journalist and writer of Fixed It, Violence and the Representation of Women in the Media, Louise Evans, founding editor for AAP Fact Check and a director for Women's Sports Australia. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks for listening to The Fourth Estate. This edition was recorded at the studios of 2SER and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Fourth Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and we thank them for their continuing support. Make sure you subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app so you can hear us talk media, politics and a few things in between. And also, we ask you to tell your friends about Fourth Estate so we can share this unique insight into our media and body politics. We'll be back with more next week, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle is Fourth Estate AU. Many thanks to my excellent producer, Anthony Dockrell. My name's Chris Anthony Thanks for listening.